0: you know, that was, thank you for that, and uh, you said, you know, I have the best wife on the planet, and I was about to say amen, and then I thought, oh, my wife's sitting next to me, so, <laughs> so you, gotta, you can't, you know, you can't toy with us like that. I thought it was like an amen moment until I thought about it, so I'm glad. You know, this morning, it's so, it's so great to be here for all our visitors that are with us. We thank you for your attendance. Uh, if there's any questions that you have afterwards, uh, if there's something that we do that may be different than you're used to, please get with us afterwards. Let us, let us answer those questions. Uh, this morning, before I get into the sermon, I just want to say I have the, the honor to, uh, to be teaching our, some of our youth right now. Uh, middle school, high school, I'm teaching them on Sunday mornings. And I want to thank the kids for doing their handouts and filling in, their, uh, fill in the blanks from last week. Uh, we started going over that. But I, I'm here to ask the parents... To ask your kids what you're learning—not just in my class, but for all the classes, right? Because the teachers they put a lot of work into to teach in these little nuggets, right? And so ask them, you know, what'd you talk about in class today? Today for the for the junior high and the middle school, we talked about you know who is God. We talked about why that question matters. We last week we looked at you know a, a worldview. And today we talked about authority, and we talked about who has that authority, who who God the Father gave that authority to, meaning Jesus the Christ. We talked about creation, God created us male and female. So I'm just saying those things to say, talk to your kids on your way home, or if you go out to lunch, how many of us go out to lunch, right? Say, hey, what what'd you talk about in class today? And try to create a little bit of a dialogue to hopefully reinforce some of the things that all the teachers are teaching. And so this morning, though, we're going to jump into a series of sermons that we started a couple weeks ago. Uh, a couple weeks ago, we, we kind of hit the divided kingdom, uh, if you remember that. And then, just for our visitors, just to kind of catch you up, we talked about the divided kingdom. We talked about the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. Uh, last week, we talked about the, the prophet of Pentecost. You guys remember that, right? We talked about Joel last week. And, uh, and we're going to look at today, we're going to start a, a series, in a series within the series, on Elijah. Because I don't know if you guys have noticed, but Elijah, there's a lot of practical lessons that you can pull from the life of Elijah. So today we're going to look at Elijah kind of from like a high-level overview, and then over the next several weeks, we're going to start to look at various aspects of those practical lessons that we could learn uh, as we study out the life of Elijah. You know, Elijah's it's it's pretty it's pretty interesting when Elijah comes on the scene because When he comes on the scene, we know that when you study the Bible, are there not like really just, uh, there's a bunch of memorable characters, right? As you study out the Bible. But we know that Elijah is one of the great prophets of God. Maybe, Maybe the greatest prophet of God. We know that he didn't even experience death. And that's one of the cool things that you learn as you study out the life of Elijah. But the interesting part about Elijah is we really don't know that much about him. You think about his life. Uh, you think about his ministry and his life. His ministry—it kind of reminds me of another individual we we learn about during the time of Abraham, uh, and we talk about Melchizedek, right? Melchizedek just appears on the scene one day, right? Not a whole lot of background. You look at Elijah. All of a sudden, you get to 1 Kings chapter seventeen and verse one. It says, "Now Elijah the Tishbite." That's it and he gets to work. Not a lot of information, right? We don't know who his parents are. We don't know what his heritage is. Uh, we don't know, uh, you know where he was born. We don't, we don't really know a whole lot of anything. But what can we know about Elijah? Well, as we study out Elijah, we know that his name means that Yahweh is my God. His parents, even though we have no idea who his parents are, must have been some godly people. Because they named them, and if you know anything about going back to the Old Testament, every name had a meaning, right? You know, today we just picked out Dave because, well, Dave was sounded like a good name for, the, for, you know, for, for my son, you know, or we pick out, you know, Heather or Keeson or this. You know, there's not really, there may be a little bit of thought, right? But maybe, you know, nowadays we try to pick one that's not really as popular, but there's really not a whole lot of meaning, really, if we're just being honest, behind our names here in America. But in the Hebrew culture and the Old Testament times, names had meanings. And so Elijah's name meant that Yahweh is my God. So at least it probably leads me to believe that his parents probably were religious. Elijah is thought for, uh, thought to be from Tishba, as we look at some of the background. We know that because it talks about Elijah. Uh, Elijah the Tishbite, right? People believe he's from Gilead, maybe even Galilee. There's some debate on that. We know that he was like John the Baptist. Because as you start to study out the life of Elijah and you start to read about uh, this man... Uh, just like John the Baptist, it talks about his appearance. And in, the, in those passages, it talks about how he was a hairy man, and he wore a leather belt around his waist. And there are two possible understandings as you, th- you look at those beginning passages that talk about him being a hairy man. Some think it's the description of the clothing that he wore. While others believe, well, maybe it had to do with his long hair hair and his long beard. But many of the prophets of old, if you go back and you study it out, many of the ancient prophets of old, we learn in Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 37, that they wore rough garments. What does that mean that they wore rough garments? It means that they wore garments that were made of, uh, of skins of animals, right? And these skins, many of them were sheepskins or goatskins. If you were to look at Hebrews 11 and 37, you don't have to turn there, but it, uh, the, the, the author of Hebrews talks about that. Elijah's appearance was, uh, it was more of an aesthetic. Well, what do I mean by ascetic, right? Well, ascetic simply means somebody who's not self-indulgent, somebody who practices uh, severe self-discipline, if you will, somebody who doesn't get caught up in the, the finer things of life. And so he was really grounded as an individual as far as his appearance goes. You know, generally Jews, you know, they wore girdles, and a girdle is simply a belt. It was usually of cotton, right? It was something that was comfortable. But we know that under the girdle they had two, what? They had two gowns, linen gowns that they would have wore, and then they would have had this cotton belt, but not the ancient prophets. They had sheepskin or goatskin mantles without the other layers underneath and just a leather girded belt. And... Those individuals, as they went out preaching the word of God, they would have seemed strange even in their day and age. If I wore what the Jews of old wore and I came to preach before you one morning, you're gonna, I'm going to get some, you know, some, uh, some odd looks. But even, even Elijah and many of the ancient prophets, they were actually strange compared to what the people of their day wore. But we know that this Elijah was a great man of God. And as we think about his, uh, his 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 him as an individual, we turn over to his ministry. In 1 Kings chapter seventeen, we see that he is one of the great prophets of the northern kingdom. Remember, we hit the, we hit on that a couple weeks ago. The northern kingdom of Israel is those ten tribes, right? That broke off after Solomon died. You had Rehoboam, you had Jeroboam, and then there was a uh, 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 Solomon's son wasn't willing to give in. He wasn't willing to take some of the burden off of the people from tax and other things. And so there becomes a civil war and they divide themselves into two kingdoms. And the northern kingdom is the kingdom that Elijah preached to during the mid-9th century BC. He confronted idolatrous kings and God performed many miracles uh, uh, through Elijah. You think about Elijah and what are those miracles are. God provided miraculously for Elijah really throughout his time. When, when, when he left And uh, he left, and and after, uh, well, it was actually the beginning, but after he fled, he went to the brook Cherith. And then the brook Cherith, what do we see? We see that God provides for him miraculously. Not only could he drink from the brook of the brook Cherith without illness, without dysentery, without uh, parasites, without being sick, we know that what happened? The ravens fed him. God sent ravens to feed him twice a day. And they were bringing him food. That's miraculous. I've never been fed by a raven. I don't know about you guys. But we know that God was caring for him. God directed Elijah. And he goes to this widow's house in Zarephath. And Zarephath was, uh, goes to the Gentile territory. And he goes into a Gentile woman's home. And he resides with her for over two and a half years. And he tells her, hey, would you please make me a little cake? And she says, but I only have just a little bit of flour and a little bit of oil. And God provides for Elijah, his his servants, his faithful servant. And that woman's one little handful of flour and a little bit of oil never never, uh, went out. It never ran out for a period of two and a half years as long as he was with her. We know that her son dies. Uh, While he's there. And that uh, Elijah goes and he prays over him. And and God through Elijah raises the the, the widow's son. And she claims that surely you are a man of God. Surely your message is the message of the Jehovah God. In 1 Kings chapter 18, we see where Elijah meets Ahab. Elijah meets Ahab and 850 of Jezebel's idolatrous prophets. And you say, 850? I didn't know it was that many. Well, yeah, because 450 were for the prophet Baal. And the other 400 400 for the prophet Asherah. Or the goddess Asherah. And they came to Mount Carmel where God demonstrated the futility of idolatry. And you say, well, what does it mean that he demonstrated the futility of idolatry? Well, it's understanding that. You guys remember back in... Uh, When God pulled the people up out of Egypt by the hand, right? He takes them out of slavery. He uh, he then takes them into the wilderness. He takes them eventually to the promised land. God, when he attacked Egypt, he attacked them with what? Do you guys remember what God attacked Egypt with? We know it was plagues, but what did those plagues represent? They represented the gods. So he was literally attacking them with the own own gods that they worshiped. And I learned something as I was studying about this week that I've never really noticed before. And that's one thing I love, that the more you read the Bible, the more you study it, the more you start to realize some things you never really noticed. I didn't notice that God did the same thing here. He did the same thing in 1 Kings chapter 18. Because God uh, demonstrates that, uh, the futility of idolatry, because who is Baal? Who are the 450 uh, uh, prophets of Baal? Well, Baal represents the storm god. He he represents the fertility god. Well, why does that matter? Well, it matters because God is showing Israel that Baal is no god at all. Because they worshipped him as the storm god. You know when he was the storm god over? Rain and dew. And so what did God do uh, for a period of three and a half years at the prayers of a righteous man? He withheld the rain. He withheld the dew. Uh, And so that that whole area, not a drop of rain, would have come down upon them. So what did he do? Just like in the times of Egypt and the plagues, that he attacked them with their own God, he again shows them the futility of idolatry because your God, who you worship and who you sacrifice children to and and who you do all these different uh, abominable things to as worship, uh, to that God. He's no God at all. For three and a half years, there will not be a drop of rain that will fall from that sky. And so, what do we see? They're praying to this God who cannot help them. And then we know, brethren, there's also uh, not just Baal, but there's the goddess Asherah. And Asherah was also a goddess of fertility and the goddess of the sea. Many of the, the, the depending on where you read uh, and some of the. Uh, the ancients, uh, different manuscripts uh, in regards to the Canaanites and the Phoenicians and the Sidonians and the others. You'll, you'll hear different, um, different understandings of who the goddess uh, uh, Asherah was. And some believe it was Baal's mom, and others believe uh, she was one of the consorts of Baal, meaning a wife of Baal. Uh, being that she also was the goddess of fertility as well as the goddess of um, of the sea. And so what do we see here? We see that when you study it out they created Asherah poles. Well what's an Asherah pole? An Asherah pole was the things that Gideon tore down and then his family wanted to kill him. But an Asherah pole was simply <coughs> a, a, a tree trunk that they removed all the limbs from and then they carved it and decorated it into the image what they thought the goddess would be. And then they then they, they, plant, they didn't plant them but they set these things in the ground. And then many of these Asherah poles would have been found in close proximity to the altars to Baal. And so you've seen that both Asherah as well as Baal worshipped in similar places. Brethren, you need to remember though that the Lord God through the prophet Moses, through uh, the great uh, man of Moses, he banned the worship of Asherah. The law of Moses in Deuteronomy 16 and 21, (coughs) excuse me, (coughs) it says the law of Moses specified... (coughs) That a grove of trees was not to be even near where the altar of the Lord would be. For despite God's clear instructions throughout the history of Israel, what have we seen? Asherah worship was a perennial problem. It was a a constant problem. And then you have the wicked Queen Jezebel. The wicked Queen Jezebel, it's actually important that you understand that she's mentioned. Because did you know that when you go through the divided kingdoms, when you start to look at all these various kings... None of the other wives are mentioned. Well, there's a reason why none of the other wives are mentioned. Because, well, they were insignificant. But this woman's important. This woman's mentioned. But she has to be the most evil, godless, individual woman that probably resided on the planet at the time. And this woman was the one who took Ahab, who was already godless, and basically kind of ramped it up to a whole another level. And so you think about the queen, uh, the, the, the wicked queen Jezebel. She was a Phoenician and she was the wife of King Ahab. And she strongly promoted Baal and Asherah worship. In 1 Kings chapter uh, 18 and verse 19, it tells us that the 400 prophets of Asherah were basically on the, uh, Israel's payroll, if you will. It says they ate at the, they ate at the table of queen, of the queen Jezebel. And at times, as you go back and you study it out, at times, Israel, they experienced some revival in the northern kingdom, as well in, in, as in the time of Judges. For example, in Gideon, in Judges chapter 6, what did they do? Well, Gideon, he started a, as God's man. He tore down the Asherahs. He tore down the Asherah poles. And his family wanted to kill him for it. Why? Because they were so godless and idolatry. And, 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 idolatry. and then you think about King Asa. In First uh, Kings fifteen, you think about King Josiah in Second uh, Kings, uh, chapter twenty three. We know that there were some times of revival, sometimes where they looked to te- tear down the Asherah poles, to tear down the pagan altars. But brethren, it was at Mount Carmel, though. It was at Mount Carmel when Elijah and the people of Israel killed the four hundred and fifty prophets of Baal. When they literally annihilated them. And then next in 2 Kings chapter 2, we learn about Elijah when he was taken up by a chariot of fire into heaven. How awesome is that? How cool would that be for Elisha? Elisha is just going down the road. You know, he's with Elijah. And all of a sudden, the Lord miraculously takes Elijah and takes him up home into heaven. Without experiencing death. So I'm just giving you a high level overview of some of the points of Elijah. And then over the next few weeks, I'm going to talk about today some of the practical lessons. But the next few weeks, we're going to start to dig in deeper to these practical lessons that we could learn. What are some 21st century applications that we could draw in our Christian faith to some of the things that we see uh, through the prophet Elijah and so as I said in 2nd Kings chapter 2 we learn about Elijah being taken up into heaven in the chariot of fire we learn about Elisha his successor and the double the, the, the double portion of his spirit that he receives but then in Matthew in Matthew in the gospel of Matthew in chapter 11 we learn that Elijah is the symbolic predecessor of who we learn he's the symbolic uh, predecessor of John the Baptist. And he represented the prophets at, at Christ's uh, transfiguration over in Matthew chapter 17. But he's not the only one there. Moses is there. Moses represents the law. Elijah represents the prophets. And then you have the Son of God. And then, uh, then the cloud opened. And when they wanted to build uh, shelters, when they wanted to build... Uh, tabernacles for Elijah, for Moses, and for God. And all of a sudden, as I talked to my kids in class this morning, it says, God, the Father, spoke, and the clouds opened, and he spoke. This is my son. The other two disappear. This is my son. And what does he say? Listen to him. You see, brethren, because God's words were Jesus' words. Jesus' words were the Holy Spirit's words that led the men as they penned the scriptures. So there's so many different things that that, that we can learn as we study out the the life of the prophet Elijah. And brethren, some of these practical lessons that I spoke about in the life and ministry of Elijah, what, what are some of those? What are some of the things that we can think of Well, just going through and writing some down? You have to understand that we, in the, first, uh, in, the, in the 21st century, just like Elijah and going all the way back to the mid-9th century B.C., if you are a child of God, if you are a follower of God, if you are a disciple of God, you never stand alone. There's probably times where it seems like you do, but you're never standing alone if you stand with God. Society will often characterize us as what? they'll often characterize us as people who are troublemakers because speaking God's will oftentimes does what it goes against the will of man because you know we know that there seems ways that seem right to man but in the end it leads to death man mankind is not to guide their own paths we know what the uh, Proverbs teach we know what Jeremiah teaches. So, brethren, we know that when we stand with God, we never stand alone. That's one of the great lessons that we can learn from Elijah. We learn from Elijah that we learn that prayer of a righteous man is effective. Why? Because he prayed that it would not rain on this land for three and a half years, and it did not rain. And so God hears the prayers of of the righteous. And so we have to understand that as children of God, we have to make sure that the sin in our life isn't hindering our prayers. And so we, we need to look at that. And in the coming weeks, we're going to look a little deeper into that as well. And the gentlemen that are teaching the, the prayer class on Wednesday nights, and it's 14 different weeks on prayer. And at first, I thought to myself, 14 weeks on prayer? Whew! It's going to be a long 14 weeks, but the men have done such a great job, and Russ has done such a great job of getting all the different men to pull out different aspects, to look at it from different angles, uh, have some great conversations. These last couple weeks, Jim, Jim Fussell's done such a great job. And so if you haven't got a chance to listen to some of those lessons, go onto to our YouTube page. Listen to them. Because they're really good, it's a lot of good stuff there. And it's so important that we understand the importance and the power that is prayer. So brethren, we also learn, as one of the practical lessons, we learn that a person's spouse is crucial. Because a person's, does a person's spouse have influence in their life? Does a person's spouse have influence? Absolutely. They can influence his or her behavior. So it's so important that we choose a spouse that it's going to help us to remain faithful unto God and not pull us away. We already know what the law of Moses said, but what did King Ahab do? He goes and not just finds any pagan woman. He finds the most godless pagan woman the world has ever seen. And he says, this one I'll take as my wife, as he tries to, uh, uh, to, to enter into like a political relationship, if you will. Because many of the marriages between the kings back then, you go back you look at Solomon. Why did he take wives of all these pagan nations to enter into basically uh, some uh, alliances, if you will, to, to, uh, to, to gain power from it? To gain uh, wealth from it. And so we see here that Jezebel, this godless woman, influences somebody who was already kind of apostate. Somebody who was already going to be falling away. And made it so much worse. We also learn in Elijah's story, brethren, we learn that even great leaders of the Bible. We talk about Elijah being the man who represented the prophets on Mount Transfiguration. But we also understand that he wasn't perfect. He was a man with a spirit like us, James tells us in James chapter 5. He was a man with a nature like us. What does that mean? It means that even though how faithful I may be, I'm going to have moments of weakness. I'm going to have moments of doubts. John the Baptist, Right? You've seen John the Baptist? He was a mighty man of God. This Holy Spirit was on him since his mother since, his, since the womb. And what do we see about John the Baptist? He's sitting in prison. He's there for a long time. Doubt starts to set in, and what does he do? He sends a couple of his disciples to go ask Jesus, "Are you really the one that's to come?" And then Jesus says, "Go back and tell him everything you've heard and everything you've seen. And so you see, brethren, we learn that when we study this out, that even some of the great prophets were discouraged at various times. And it's just human nature to become discouraged at times. And we have to realize that if we understand who we are in Christ, that we stand with God, that we, don't, we never stand alone. And brethren, it's understanding those things... That will help us to get through those difficult times. We also learn as we study the life of Elijah that physical necessities of life, are uh, they must be met reasonably and in order for us to really follow God. And that's why God provided uh, at the brook Cherith. That's why God provided at the widow's house in Zarephath. That's why God provided at every turn for not just Elijah, but for all his prophets and his children. Deuteronomy chapter 28 is that, uh, that chapter on blessings and cursings I, that I mentioned a couple weeks ago. And we talked about, God says, if you do this, if you're obedient and faithful unto me and remain righteous as my children, you can expect all of these blessings. It's like a half a chapter of blessings. And we see that when they were, that they were blessed more than any people on this planet. But when they chose to go astray, when they chose to be apostate, when they chose to go into godly rebellion and idolatry, God says you should expect the curse. And we see the second half of that chapter and all that would take place. So you see, brethren, there are so many just different practical lessons that we can learn as we study out through the life of Elijah. And so, brethren, remember, we study the Old Testament. Why? Because it's our tutor that leads us to the seed line. It means it leads us to the Christ, the Messiah. The Old Testament is where we find the revelation of the covenant promises of God that are going to affect all mankind and not just one group of people. You think of the first passage of scripture on the screen behind me, 2 Timothy chapter 3 verse 16 and 17. What does it say? This is nothing new. We've seen it a thousand times or more. But all scriptures what? Inspired by God. That's talking about the Old Testament. It's talking about the New Testament. And we know that it's profitable for what? For teaching, for correction, for reproof, For training up in righteousness so the man of God can be adequately equipped for all that God requires of him. Brethren, before I close this lesson down, I want us to just look at one one aspect of the life and ministry of Elijah. And that's that first one that I spoke of, that we never stand alone. Because last week we learned as we studied out the prophet, uh, the, the prophet of Pentecost, as we studied out the prophet Joel, we learned that God is going to pour out his spirit on all mankind. And when we come into contact, when we come into relationship with the spirit of God, it happens in the waters of baptism. And we know that the Holy Spirit of God then resides within us. And that same Spirit, that same God, has been providing continuously in the life of Elijah. Who cries out on our, uh, not only continues in the life of Elijah, but also cries out on our behalf when we know not the words to pray. So we know that the Holy Spirit has been poured out on his people like it was prophesied all the way back in about 800 and some BC. So you see, brethren, we learn that Christ is the mediator. We learn in Scripture that Christ is the mediator between the Father and all who call upon the name of the Lord. Do you believe that? Do you believe that Christ is the mediator? That the Holy Spirit resides within you? And that when you stand, you do not stand alone? And I told you, brethren, when you stand with God, there are going to be people who are not well pleased with you. There are going to be people who are going to slander you and call you names. And I know that because I look at this next passage of Scripture. This one comes from 1 Kings chapter 18. Notice what it says in verse 36 and 38 on the screen behind me. At the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice, Elijah the prophet, he came near and said, O Lord, O Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel today, let it be known that you are God in Israel, and that I am your servant, and I have done all these things at your word Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that you, that you, O Lord, are God, and that you have turned their hearts back again. And then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering, and the wood and the stones and the dust licked up the water that was in the trench as the fire came down. Brethren, what's the point? The point is that, that the prayers of a righteous man availeth much. We know that Elijah, praying unto God, knowing that even though he thought in his heart and his mind, I'm the last one. I'm the last one left. Because what happened earlier in in chapter 17 and 18? uh, Jezebel was killing all the prophets of God. Except for Obadiah, which we'll learn about later, he hid some of them in in the caves. But what do we see? We see that Elijah understands that even if I am standing alone, Almighty God stands beside me. And if he stands beside me, that I know that he'll answer my prayers. And what happens? All the 450 prophets of Baal, they're cutting themselves. They're screaming. They're dancing. They're doing all these things. And as Jim said on Wednesday, it's kind of the first time we see some biblical trash talk. And it was kind of interesting. Hey, maybe you got to dance around a little more. Maybe you got to scream a little louder. Maybe he's in the, Maybe he's in the restroom. You know, maybe he can't hear you. And so, brethren, what do we see? We see that Elijah knew that God was going to answer his prayer because he knew that he could trust the holy and righteous God that he serves. Remember that the Apostle Paul told the Romans in Romans chapter 8 and verse 31 if God is for us, who can be against us? Brethren, that was over not only in the Old Testament times, but in the New Testament times. Here, 2,000 years later, if God is for you, who can be against you? So brethren, I said earlier that those of the world, those uh, who are worldly, those who are children of Satan, if you will, will often slander us as troublemakers. They'll slander us as haters and homophobes. They'll call us bigots and so on when we will not bow down in submission to their worldly ideologies. Well, how do I know that? Because you look at 1 Kings 18 and 17. You got this godless man who's supposed to be leading the 10 northern tribes of Israel, Ahab, and he says in 1 Kings 18:17, "When Ahab saw Elijah, Ahab said to him, "Is this you, the troublemaker of Israel?" What was he saying? He feels like all of these bad things have come on me because of Elijah, a righteous individual. Forgetting to look inwardly, forgetting to look in the mirror, so to speak, and understanding that all the problems he is having is because of his of the sin in his life. It makes me think of Acts chapter seventeen and verse six. When they when it says, When they Meaning the angry Jews did not find Paul and Silas. They began dragging who? Jason. They dragged Jason and some of the brethren before the city authorities shouting. What does it say? These men who have what? Upset the world. These men who are causing a scene, they're causing a ruckus. They have come here also. What are they doing? They're trying to slander these good, righteous, holy men. Brethren, lastly, I look to John chapter 15 and verse 18 and 19. Jesus tells his disciples that the relationship with the world is going to be hard. And Jesus says, if the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it has hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. Well, what is he talking about if you're of the world? If you were in agreement with their idolatry, if you were in agreement with their sexual immorality, if you were in agreement with their godless ways, they're going to love you. Why? Because you're one of their own. But if you stand with God, if you stand with me, Jesus says that the world is going to hate you because they hated me before they hated you. Brethren, if you are of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, because of this, the world hates you. Brethren, first 19, it sums up perfectly those of the world. Worldly corrupt individuals would love if you would just bow down and submit. Bow down and submit to their worldly ways and their ungodless uh, activities. Brethren, before I close this down... We think about the world. We think about Christianity. We think about being disciples of Christ. But since we, Christians, have the audacity, Christians have the audacity to think for ourselves and not to believe something that's contrary to the word of God, we are hated for it. But I want you to know that God wants you to know that you don't stand alone. That God stands with you. We don't have a a spirit of timidity and fear, but of power. So you see, brethren, where does that come from? It comes from knowing who you are in God. And that no matter what the world thinks, no matter what slanderous accusations that they they, they cast against you, you know that these things are going to happen. Because Jesus prophesied it. He said that this is going to happen, so when it happens, you can say, Oh, yeah, I remember Jesus told me it was going to happen. But Jesus also told them that if they remain faithful unto him, that he and the Father and the Spirits will be on their side. So you see, brethren, just as all the prophets of old, they were hated, they were slandered, and most of them were killed by a prideful, godless, shameless, and idolatrous people. Brethren, God's will is contrary to the will of man. God's will has been is and will always be contrary to the will of man. And those who hate you for standing up for the truth as provided by God, they don't really hate you, but they hate God the Father. They hate the Son. They hate the Holy Spirit. They hate everything that God stands for. And Jesus warns that all who are faithful unto him will be persecuted for their belief in him and their dedication to his teachings. But remember that those who hate the disciples of Christ Brethren, they don't hate you, they hate Christ. And if they hate Christ, they're already in a lost and dying state. And those who hate Christ, they hate the Father who sent Him. So brethren, I'm just here to tell you that it's okay to be disliked and hated by shameless, godless individuals of the world. But it doesn't change the fact that we're called to love them anyways. We love them anyways... And we take the word of God to them. And we treat them with love and respect and compassion. And we think about the idea of putting on Christ. We think about thinking as Christ would think. We think about doing as Christ would do. And so brethren, I'm here to encourage you to, no matter what somebody may say, love them anyways. Like we learn about in Romans chapter 12. Let God take vengeance. Let God have revenge. But as for you, be at peace with all mankind. Love them anyways, no matter how difficult it may be. It's not the love that you have for your wife or the love that you have uh, for uh, family and friends. It's that agape type of love, that love that's sacrificial in nature. You see, brethren, when you can love people like Christ loves, you may have an opportunity, just may have an opportunity in order to, to change the hearts of those who have their hearts hardened By, well, evil and sin. So you see, brethren, this is just the opening of a series within a series. And we're going to continue to look at some of these practical applications. We're going to continue to look at various aspects of the life of Elijah as we go through the coming weeks. If you have any questions about this or this study or the series, please let me know. But if you're here today and you're not a child of God, we know, brethren, that the journey with God begins in the waters of baptism. You can have your sins washed away. You can receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. God will pick you up and add you to the kingdom of God, the kingdom of Christ, the kingdom of heaven. That can be yours today. Come forward if that is your desire as we stand and sing the song of invitation.